Hello, I'm Katja Becker from Torah Mod, and you're listening to the Scene World podcast. Hey, all y'all, it's the Scene World podcast. I'm Adrian. Hello. That's Jörg saying hello over there. Yes. <laughs> How's it going? Good, good. Cool. So, this time it's audio only again. Yes, and back, to, back to our... our um, audio. Yes. <laughs> um, we are talking to Josh Oz from Let's Encrypt. Ooh. Ooh. Yes, and um, we will learn today also, among other things... Why it is important for us retro people. Mm -hmm. And um, in fact, prior to this recording, AJ uh, and I just spoke about how well the Amiga handles secure socket layer. Yes. Yeah. Because no one could see it because we're in, we're in audio, but behind me, my Amiga 500 is attempting to display the Scene World webpage. Yeah. Well, but before we go into the um, interview, mm -hmm. let's talk about news. 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 <laughs> news. Okay. So, um, do you have something you want to um, start? I don't have very much. I've got, uh, I got two things that... Um, Maybe I don't have two things. I've got one thing. Which is that there's a new game that was released for the 64 called Old Tower. Oh, okay. Um, so it, it actually looks really cool. Um, it's a... I, I don't know what you would call it. It's... it's you're, you're, you're exploring a tower full of traps and, and bats because there's always bats. It kind of reminds me of Tower Toppler, but weirder. Tower Toppler okay. or ne Nebulous to you guys in the in Europe. In Europe, yeah. <laughs> it's kind of it's kind of like it's kind of like Nebulous, but on the inside, and the way that you move around is closer to. There's an old Amiga game called Glob Duel, and you kind of move okay. around like that. So it's it's really cool looking. It's well done. Um, I don't know how long it's been in development but people should definitely check it out that's what i got nice. i'll put links nice. to that below for where people can look at that and so on and so forth yeah so what what else happened well on the pc retro area um audio surf this old game for Windows um, where you can surf through MP3 music, you know, visually. Mm -hmm. um, it actually got an update recently after more than five years and now it's compatible to widescreen monitors. Oh, okay. Oh my god. And everybody was surprised um, that the author actually decided to make an update for the game Hmm. So here we go, pretty, pretty, pretty nice. Yeah. Um, well, other news. 
also that um, the Plast Annual 2020 magazine Kickstarter finally launched. Um, okay. Yeah. And the special thing about this uh, magazine issue is that Andrew is part of the staff, Andrew Fisher, our Andrew Fisher. Yes, he is. And, uh, yeah, well, so if you are a fan of Scene World, you definitely should get the first issue because there is something in it about us. Hmm. Ooh. Yeah. Very nice. Yeah. <clears throat> well, and um, the other news is Ben Taylor, Pleasant Green, almost got the money together for Chica Audrey. Oh, yes, yes. The woman from, um, from Africa. Okay. He almost got the money together so she can afford her... Um, well, her surgery needed for stomach. So that's pretty neat. Yeah. We we had him we had him a while back talking about um, African scammers and how he helps people and all that stuff. And it seems his community is pretty um, well powerful when it comes to ordering books. Yeah. Because she threw her life in a pictures on an iPad and published it. Yeah. Um, right. So that's basically basically the news I've got. Oh yes. Um, well, in our Gamescom special, we also men mentioned um, Contra. Mm -hmm. And um, now, now take a guess. How many euros does Contra currently cost on a Switch? Too many? No. Let, let's take a guess. 25. It's a Konami game. So... 25. <laughs> no. 17. Okay. Yeah, it's not that, off. Not, not that far off. Yeah. Well, that's the thing. That's the thing. It is one of the cheapest games... Physical releases on the Switch right now. Yeah. And I really wonder if the price drops so much because nobody buys it. Yeah. And if you if you look on German Amazon, the reviews saying the graphics are crap, <laughs> which of course is not so easy to say because the Switch is not a very pow powerful right. um, uh, platform in the first place. That's right, right. But hey, they mentioned to to put Wolfenstein 2 on it on Doom and Doom. So, mm -hmm. um, anyway, um, as, as you know, guys, um, Martin, Aman, and I, we were at the presentation in the business area from Konami showing um, um, Contra. And I have to say, I liked it quite a lot. Um, and to me, it looked like a full-price game. So, I'm a bit surprised it ended up being a budget game right hmm. now and being one of the cheaper Twitch games and we are not talking about a discounted game from the store no we are talking about um freshly bought from amazon physical yeah. right. on a game card 
So that really surprised me. And hmm. I seriously hope that that this unsuccessful or not so successful release won't mean for Konami that they will stop their efforts in the retro IP era. Um, because there's there's too much there to, to milk. Well, it's it's their it's their um, first attempt. Yeah, yeah. And I hope they will not be well unmotivated to to try again mm -hmm. because I like that. Um, because you know it yourself. Ten years ago, everybody was like, "Ah, who cares about the IPs from the eighties and nineties?" It's not worth making a successor for for such games. And hey, I mean, <laughs> we talked to people making a new Equinox, yeah, a game from the nineties on DOS machines, mm -hmm. or or um, well, or or like like I said, just this um, Contra, which is an NES game originally. Right, right. So um, yeah. And I really, I really like this, the the way this is going, and well, I hope it's not the end. So anyway, because I remember five years ago when we first were in touch with Konami, they were like, "We will not talk about our old stuff, about retro, whatever." Um, so, yeah. You know, it really so any, kind of surprises yeah. me, too. You're talking about, you know, how just a couple of years ago, people weren't really interested in the IPs from the 80s and 90s and whatnot. Um, yeah. I've, I've been invited to a couple of retro computing um, groups on Facebook, and I've discovered that one of the things that, that people are doing now is they're, they're fixing up and setting up, like, Windows 98 machines. I know DOS like, retro is a thing now. Yeah, I know. yeah, I under, yeah, I guess that it is retro, you know, but still like Windows 98? Like Windows yeah. 98 wasn't good even in 98. I know, it crashed a lot. Blue screen were right, famous. But, but also that. the thing is that like, you know, on your, on a standard Windows 10 system, you can still run most of the software that ran on it in 98, right? No, 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 you can't because um 32 is is still working on 64 but not not uh, but a lot of games that were running on windows 95 and 98 were still 16-bit okay and those games will not run because 16-bit uh, core has been removed from the 64-bit right, right operating right. systems entirely yes entirely. But, but a lot of these people they're not they're not putting games on there they're they're using it they're setting it up and getting it ready to like go online and stuff okay Which, no yeah that's just I, i'm talking about the retro windows yeah, slash yes dos gamers that makes more sense yes yeah yeah but just for I, general everyday use you know there was a big thing about someone trying to hook up a parallel printer to their windows 98 box and it was like, first off, you know, like, what, why, you, you know, it just, it, it, I guess, I guess everyone's got their retro, but it just, it feels, I don't know, to me, a Windows 98 machine doesn't feel as retro as it feels just like, you know, an old computer that isn't very good. 
that well, doing computer it, it stuff. Well, it does for me because that is how my PC career started. I started started out with the DOS machine and Windows 3.1. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and and yeah. one of my plans this this summer is to make an eight uh, 386 and a Pentium both ready. Oh really? With, with DOS and Windows 98. Interesting, interesting. That are my plans for the summer. Hmm. Yeah, I got the machines. I got the hardware in pieces laying around. I got the software still from back in the day, original licenses and so on. I just need to put it all together again. Okay. Okay. And I even got a CRT PC screen oh. fr- that I used back in the day. So it's all here. It's all my in my flat. But okay. Um. Yeah. Okay. Well. There you go. Well. I I even have a I even have a video from the um from the laptop um yeah. yeah i guess it's all just a matter of what you remember you know I, i'm messing with this old amiga because i have no everybody that gets the that gets amiga seems to be getting it mostly for the games they want to play games on it i don't have any any game background on the amiga so i'm i've got it and it's like well, what do i do with it and what i end up trying to do is what would I have used it for had I gotten it back in 1991 or whenever it is that I wanted it, you know? So so I'm trying to, like, figure out, okay, well, in the 90s, I probably would have figured out how to get it online and get it on the web. So, and I look, and surprisingly, there's, there's actually software still being developed and still available for it that will run on a 68K classic Mac, a Mac Amiga 500, with, with modest upgrades, um, that will let you do that, and you know, try. I haven't, I haven't gotten a printer for it yet. That's my next, uh, my next goal, and a, and a decent word processor. I cannot find for the life of me. I got WordPerfect, and I'm not really thrilled with that on the Amiga. No, no, no. I mean, on the C64, I've got plenty of word processors that I'm, I'm fine with. On the Amiga, I have not found one that I really like. Isn't there a Geos on the Amiga too? No. Come on, there's Geos on the PC. There must be Geos on the Amiga. No. No, there was... Uh, Amiga's got its own workbench. It's the closest thing you're going to get. I don't think it's got Geos. Wait. Hmm. Just looking it up. Geo. So the PC version is called GeoWorks. Right. Yes. Well, yeah. and that in, was bought out indeed, by... it's it doesn't it doesn't say anything about the Amiga. That's yeah. surprising. Okay. And GeoWorks was bought by Palm, I think. Hmm. Okay. Okay. So Geos wasn't a thing on the Amiga. No, okay. no. And I because can't... it it contains a pretty decent word processing. It does. It does. Program. It does. In oh, Amiga, I'm sure that there's plenty of stuff on there that, that would be perfectly... There's got to be a good word processing. And it was the first one yeah. on the 64 having WYSIWYG. Yes. Bitches, for the nerds of us, what you see is what you get. Yeah. 
So it's just a matter of me tracking down and finding something. Ask ask somebody who is a computer expert in his twenties. What is WeezyRig? They were like WeezyRig. <laughs> no idea. Yeah. So, uh, so anyway, yeah. Anyway, so if that's, that's all we got, then we should pop over to Let's Encrypt. Should we talk about what just happened with Let's Encrypt? Should we? I don't know. Should we? <laughs> well, <laughs> what do what do what do you think? I I I mean I I don't know. I don't know. That's that's up to you. I, I don't think it's specifically a bad thing. It was a bug, and they're fixing it, and that's it. A bunch of a bunch of uh, certificates got revoked, and a, a bunch of millions. Yeah, yeah. Well, it was like three million out of like a hundred and seventeen million. So it's not a huge I amount. I know. I know. The German media. Pushed it up into proportions. Yeah, yeah. It's not. It, it was. It's something that they seem to be handling very well. It. It was. It just came out the other day that that um, there's a bug and so certificates are being mm-hmm. being revoked and that everyone should basically get new ones and that seems to be what what people are doing. They're they're going and getting new ones and everything's working pretty well. Mm. Well, the thing is, what we learned is that. Um, Let's Encrypt is part of Mozilla, and what happened recently is um, that Mozilla laid off a lot of people, unfortunately. Yeah. So... Things happen. I don't, I don't know if this has something to do with it. It could. It's always a possibility. Yeah, but but we should also mention that Josh Aus is also one of the founders of Let's Encrypt. Yes. So he's a key person. Yeah. Well, let's go and talk to him rather than talking about them. (laughs) Okay, let's do it. So we are talking today with Josh Aus from Let's Encrypt. How are you, sir? Welcome to the podcast. Great. Thanks for having me. Wonderful. So, first of all, I guess let's start with the usual common thing. How did you get into tech and stuff? I started building websites when I was in high school and uh, got pretty into the browser wars, I guess, back in the Internet Explorer versus, you know, Mozilla Netscape stuff and got really into the Mozilla community. I ended up working for Mozilla after college, and that's basically, in a nutshell, how I got in there. Hmm. Was there ever a winner of the browser wars? <laughs> <laughs> I think the winners are always temporary, yeah. you know? Um, Netscape, and then IE, and then Firefox, and now I guess you know Chrome is pretty popular. Hmm. Right. Um so you are actually working for Let's Encrypt, and um, this has actually the mission to make the whole internet secure. And um, as we know nowadays, almost every homepage is encrypted. Despite um, at the beginning, it was like 
you only got it when you needed it, when you were a company and you had to, well, make sure that, you know, payment data was encrypted and so on. Um, so how did that start that you um, worked at Let's Encrypt? Did they hire you? Did you apply or how did that happen? Well, I started the organization back in 2013. So... I mentioned before that I work for Mozilla after college and I ended up staying there for about 12 years. And one thing that I did there in the later years was run Mozilla's networking group. And while I was doing that, it was pretty frustrating that so many connections were not secure to Firefox. And there's really nothing you can do about that on the Firefox side of things. There's no code you can write to make those connections secure. You have to get the websites to enable HTTPS. And that's a huge task. You know, there's hundreds of millions of websites out there and getting hundreds of millions of websites to do any particular thing is very difficult. In some cases, maybe impossible. But there was really no other path forward for the web. Like, we had to make that happen. We had to get them to switch. So we thought a lot about what it would take. Like, why don't they turn, why don't they just turn HTTPS on? And the biggest barrier that we saw was that getting certificates was very difficult. It could be expensive. And in some parts of the world, it wasn't even really possible to get a certificate. So we figured, you know, that's the most difficult thing. And if we can solve that, we think adoption numbers will go up quite a bit. So I talked to a bunch of folks within Mozilla and, and around the industry about what we could do, and we thought about a lot of different possible solutions. And in the end, we came to the conclusion that we really need to start a new certificate authority, one that gave away certificates for free in the easiest possible way. Ultimately, we want to make it so easy that if you're opting a website, you don't even need to know that you have a cert. It should just happen in the background, um, just like so many other things happen in the background when you run a web server. So we got together a bunch of partners and started an, a legal entity called Internet Security Research Group. And that's the legal entity that runs Let's Encrypt today. So Let's Encrypt is the name of our CIR, the service that ISRG offers. So we incorporated that in, I think, around May of 2013 and then got to work building Let's Encrypt. And that ended up launching to the public in late 2015. Okay, can we maybe yeah. explain what a certificate is to people that may not be savvy with web stuff and, and security and so forth? Sure. Um, security, on, security on the web is based on something called public key encryption. So there's a public key and a private key. And if you want to talk to a website in a secure way, you need to know what the public key is for that website. Because ultimately, you're, you're going to encrypt data with that public key when you send it to the website. A certificate is a signed digital statement, essentially, that says, what is the correct public key for a particular set of domains? So if you want to connect to Google.com, you need to know what is the, what is the public key for Google.com. What encryption key should, should you use? <laughs> if you use the wrong key, you could be talking to the wrong party. So a certificate that certificate authorities give out really just connects a public key to a domain so that you can set up a secure connection, an encrypted connection. 
Okay. Hmm. Interesting. Um, there's one thing I figured watching all that thing is um, that I guess in the year of 2016 or even more 2017, more and more personal homepages and even more important, more and more um, web posters started offering um, the SSL or TLS certificates for free. So isn't that kind of that your movement with Let's Encrypt is, well, somehow destroying a commercial market for for domain encryptions? Because before you had, you know, you had like um, different services that would allow you to get a certificate. And I, I know it from, from, uh, from companies I worked for, those costed $100 a year or something. As you mentioned earlier, it, it was quite expensive. So what's your point of view about that? So I don't know too much about the commercial market, frankly, just because we don't participate in it. So we offer our services and you know people use it or don't. And I, I really don't know what's happening in the commercial market. But I think a good place to start thinking about this is think, think about the pie as a whole, right? So prior to Let's Encrypt, not very many websites used HTTPS or bot certificates, right? Now HTTPS has become essentially standard. If you want to set up a website, you set it up with HTTPS and a certificate. So sure, we issue a lot of certificates, but the vast majority of the certificates that we issue go to sites that didn't have certificates before. So it's something like, it's well over 90% of the certificates we issue go to sites that didn't have one before. But every pretty much every site these days is, is getting a certificate. So, well, we do have pretty strong market share in the sense that I think we issue more certificates than every day than all of the CAs combined. The, the entire market is much larger today, right? So we have a big piece of the pie, but it's a much bigger pie. Um, I was just going to say um, one thing that I... I noticed um, particularly was you started to be very active on Twitter. And um, and also at the same time, I noticed at least in Germany, a lot of media got attention from Let's Encrypt. So I guess the first starting point was for you to get everybody know you. Yeah. So we want people to know what we do for a few different reasons. We want people, first of all, to know that we're there as a resource. So that if you're setting up a website, you don't think to yourself, oh, getting a certificate is so difficult, I'm not going to do it. We want you to know that we exist so that you, when you set up a new website, you turn to us and get a certificate if you need it. If you want to get someone somewhere else, that's fine too. But we're here as a resource if anyone needs it. And that's, that's the biggest reason we communicate. The second reason is that we are a nonprofit. So we're a US-based public benefit entity. And that means that you know we don't charge for what we do, so we need sponsors and we need people to support us. So we think we provide a ton of value to the web. I mean, imagine, imagine what the price tag would be. Like 10 years ago, if you said, what would it be worth to the world 
to secure the vast majority of the web with HTTPS. What's the price tag on that, right? Mm -hmm. It's huge. It's worth a ton. So we tried to provide a lot of value to, to the web and everybody who uses it. And in exchange, we need a small amount of money to keep running. For us, that's about you know three and a half, four million dollars a year these days. And we think that's pretty efficient. So we do need people to give back to help keep the service running. So that's another reason that we're we're active in talking about what we do. I have to admit, as I'm not a web hoster myself, I'm not totally into it, into the process of getting one. But I think I have read that you work in kind of different because normally in the commercial market, you get a certificate and then it's valid for a year. But you kind of um, re require the um, web service to run a script that would refresh these scripts every three months, something like that? Yeah, so our service does operate a bit differently than most other CAs. So first of all, we're very focused on ease of use. Um, in, the world of in the world of security and encryption and things like that, ease of use is really the most important factor. It doesn't matter how good your encryption is or how fancy your security system is if people can't figure out how to use it properly. So we're very focused on ease of use. And you know, I mentioned we talked a little bit before about how certificates are free. And part of the reason that they're free is not so much about the money. The reason they're free is so that it doesn't need to be a billing interaction. In the ideal world, you would start a web server and the web server would just go get a certificate in the background, install it, and use it. And if we require you to do anything, such as you know, go find a credit card, things like that, that automation and that user experience takes a big hit. So we're very focused on ease of use, and that leads us to automation. We don't want people to have to do anything manually with regards to getting a certificate. Your software should be set up to do it properly for you. And if you're doing it in an automated way, there's fewer mistakes, and you don't need to you don't need to worry about how long the lifetime of a certificate is. The reason that we make shorter lifetime certificates, 90 days, and we recommend that you renew every 60 days, is that it's much better for security. So once a certificate is issued, you can revoke it if you have a security problem, but revocation doesn't work that well. It's, you can essentially consider it to be valid until it's expired. So if you have a major security problem like Heartbleed, if you can recall Heartbleed where it was a major vulnerability where people leaked a lot of private keys on their web servers. Right. You know, if you had a, a one, two, three year certificate, that certificate can essentially be used until it's expired with your stolen keys. And that's not a good situation. It's much better to have shorter lifetimes and renew on those shorter lifetimes so that in the worst possible case, your cert is out of circulation in 90 days. And if you're running your system in an automated way so that you're not the one manually renewing it, it shouldn't matter how often you renew it, right? If, right. if it's automated, you know, you could renew it every week and it doesn't matter to you because it just happens automatically. So we are, we are very focused on automation, primarily for ease of use 
and secondarily for security reasons. You mentioned that um, the ease of use is important, but in the real world, isn't it like as a owner of a homepage, I ask my provider to get the certificate? Yeah, it depends on how you're running your website. If you're running your website yourself and you're administering the server, then you would use some software to get a certificate directly from us. Probably the majority of certificates that we issue to are to hosting providers. So you set up a hosting provider account with somebody and then they get a certificate on your behalf. So that's there's a huge number of large hosting providers out there that use Let's Encrypt. Um, so that's probably the way that most people experience using our service. And is there a risk that the money will go away at some point? I mean, if I mean, you say you are depending on donations, and um, isn't that implying a risk that at some point Let's Encrypt as a service could stop? I don't think it's really any different than a commercial entity, right? I mean, for any organization out there, sure, there's a possibility that they run out of money, whether they're a nonprofit or not. In this case, you know, like I said, it, we provide a ton of value for the money that we consume. And lots of people involved in, in the web and how it works recognize that. So we have a really strong set of sponsors, I think more than 75 right now. So most of our money comes from uh, corporate sponsors. And those are sort of in three tiers, platinum, gold, and silver. And, you know, they, those sponsors really know what we're bringing to the table here. And they're happy to, to help keep the service running. After that, we do get some grants. And then we get some individual donations. And that's just individuals, you know, giving five bucks, a hundred bucks, something like that. And it all comes together to provide everything we, we need to run this service. But I, you know, I'm not very concerned about this going away. I think, like I said, the value we provide for how little it takes to run the service is something that, you know, people are always going to be willing to help keep it going. Mm -hmm. You mentioned at the beginning that uh, before Let's Encrypt, in some part of the world, it wasn't even possible to get a certificate for encrypted homepages. Do you have any numbers or examples? Yeah, so it's some examples would be, you know, we're really we're really proud to provide our service to countries like Cuba. There's no we don't have a financial transaction involved with the people who use our service, so we're able to provide service there. It, it gets very complicated what the situation is legally, but we're able to provide service in Cuba, for example. There are restrictions on who we can issue to. So in some cases, some of the countries that we serve that other CAs don't serve, you know, we may not be able to serve the governments of those countries, but we can serve ordinary people in the countries. So we do what we can to provide the service everywhere because we think, you know, for the most part, most normal people trying to go about living their lives deserve a secure and private experience on the internet. I see. Yeah, we once we once had an interview with somebody from archive.org and they, they mentioned a similar issue that law and takedown notice and limitations of um, what is allowed in the country or not is basically what is hindering 
the services to be available worldwide. Yeah, so we have a good team working on legal stuff for us. We spend a lot of time looking at U.S. sanctions, things like that, and like I said, trying to provide us provide our service to as many people as possible. That's not everybody. You know, there are people, organizations, entities, governments that we're not able to service. But overall, you know, that's a very small number of of people who aren't able to use our service. Mm-hmm. So is there anything else you are planning right now to push it further? like the next big step or are you already happy with how it turned out with the quick growing of secure web pages well we're not done yet there's still a good chunk of the web that has you know yet to be secured so when we talk about how much progress we've made you can look at some graphs at letsencrypt.org stats and right now we think a lot about the the statistic called percentage of web pages loaded. So we want to know every time you load a page, is it HTTPS or not? So we're not talking about different websites. We're talking about every time you load a particular page. Mm -hmm. So the percentage of page loads that use HTTPS. Uh, Globally, that's around 80% right now. So 20% of all page loads around the world are still not using HTTPS. So we're always trying to figure out how to get those websites switched over um there can be all sorts of issues there it can be about you know maybe the the software ecosystem has some holes in it we need to figure out and make sure they have the tools they need maybe we just need to you know pressure them to do the work and get it done there's lots of reasons but we've still got 20 percent of the web globally or 20 percent of page loads globally that are not using hps today so we'd like to get that done um, we're always looking for ways to move the certificate authority ecosystem forward. So how can we do the job that we do better and in a more secure manner? So that means looking at everything from the policies that certificate authorities operate under to the software that we use to our internal processes and controls, things like that. And, you know, a lot of the time we, we look for ways to take our experience and help other CAs improve as well. So an example of this is we're pretty concerned about this protocol called BGP, Border Gateway Protocol. And it's the protocol that helps find routes for internet traffic around the world. So when you send a packet you know, from Germany to me in the United States, that packet takes a certain route through the world. And BGP determines a lot about what route it takes. And there's a type of attack called a BGP hijack where you can essentially route traffic in malicious ways. So we're concerned about that for the web in general, but as it applies to certificate authorities, it's particularly dangerous because validation traffic for certificates can get rerouted. So we're trying to figure out how can CAs protect themselves better against BGP attacks in the future. Now, luckily, you know, BGP is not a, a very well-known protocol. There aren't a lot of attackers, you know, looking to attack there, but it's growing. And so we're doing some research around that, uh, including with some academic institutions like Princeton and trying to figure out how can we 
perform our certificate validation in such a way that BGP hijacks are difficult to affect us with. And we're hoping to roll out some mitigations this year and help the rest of the industry roll those out as well. I think I've read about that a few years ago, that some Indians um, were able to to generate fails, fake certificates, and then <laughs> Google Google tried to to um, well to block them from from Chrome of accepting them and so on. Um, especially in the last years, there were a lot of fights which authorities would be still accepted or not. Kind of a war in a way. I found this pretty strange. I always thought like, okay, um, there's not much difference, but it seems there is. Well, I'm not very familiar with the case that you're describing, but there are, there are a number of different ways that certificates can be issued you know, illegitimately. It might be that someone hacks into a certificate authority and generates them. It might be that a certificate authority does not have the proper policies or pro proper controls in place. It might be that a BGP hijacking um, causes certificates to be issued illegitimately. Um, you know, there have been cases where CAs have had control issues and have been distrusted. So various browser programs have distrusted them. Um, I can't really comment on that, but yeah, I think we're always looking at, I think anytime a certificate is issued illegitimately, you know, we as a CA and the wider CA community, so the other CAs and the browsers, we always look at why did that happen? And we try to both fix the problem and figure out how to prevent it from happening again in the future. So what was the process actually of getting accepted as a CA? What is the thing you had to do? Or was it easy because it said you worked already for Marcella, so... Well, you know, and it would seem, you know, something like a certificate authority would be a, you know, a large kind of conglomerate of, of you know, not something that anyone could just kind of show up and be like, I want to do this too, and they'd be like, sure, no problem, kid and let you go on with it, you know, like, so, yeah, I guess, so what he's asking is, what was the process, I suppose, for, for getting authorized to do that? So, if you want to be a publicly trusted certificate authority, you need to get the browsers and operating systems out there to trust you. So, browsers and operating systems have a list of all the certificate authorities that they trust to issue certificates, and you mm -hmm. need to be in those lists. Mm -hmm. So, more specifically, you need to be in the list for all the popular ones. Um, so, practically speaking, that means, you know, Google, Chrome, and Android, Mozilla, Apple, Microsoft, um, Oracle, BlackBerry. They all have root programs that are good to be in. So, you need to apply to all those different root, pro root programs separately. And... The requirements for a lot of them overlap. So the most important requirement is that you pass something called a web trust audit, which is where you hire auditors to come in and look at how your certificate authority operates against a set of criteria called web trust principles. And then they'll issue a report about whether you're properly 
you know, complying with those principles. So root programs are definitely going to want that report, and they'll probably also want some other information. And then, so you get all these applications together. You essentially want to demonstrate that you are a responsible CA that can be trusted. And then you submit those applications. And, you know, some things might get... Um, some things might get approved relatively quickly. Some can take years. But even if you, after you get in, so let's say you submit an application to the, you know, Mozilla root program. And let's say, you know, after six months you get in. That's just the decision to let you in. Now you've got to wait for all of the Firefox browsers in the world to update and get the updated list of trusted certificates. And when you're looking at something like Android, where you know they have a very those operating system they have a very long lifetime in the world so you might be waiting you know five to ten years for all the android phones in the world to get an updated list of certificates so you got to set up your ca you got to pass these audits and then you got to wait quite a while under normal circumstances if you don't want to wait that long which for example we didn't You can you can essentially make a deal with an existing certificate authority to cross-sign you, where you are essentially associate, trusted by association with them. Oh, so okay. we have a deal with a certificate authority called IdenTrust, where they have signed our certificates. So when your browser trusts a Let's Encrypt certificate, it's often actually trusting us because you trust IdenTrust. Mm. And sometime, I think, around the end of 2021, we're going to switch to direct trust. So we're already trusted by almost all the devices out there in the world. And within the next couple of years here, we're going to make the transition to not using trust by association, if that makes sense. But, you know, it's a very expensive process. You know, you can't set one of these things up and pass audits for, you know, less than one, two, three million dollars. And it takes some time, so it's a, it's a big undertaking. Hmm. So that leads to the question: from the planning state to finally be operative, how long did it take for Let's Encrypt to be fully up and running? So, a lot of the time that was spent before you know, fall 2014 was about setting up the organization and getting the funding. That probably took a couple of years to decide how it's going to be set up, how it's going to be funded, who's going to run it, what exactly is the plan. Once we had that stuff in place, then we spent about a year technically building the certificate authority. So we wrote all of our software from scratch. We put all of our hardware and our servers into special secure data centers, got them set up running the software. So actually technically building Let's Encrypt, the CA, it was a very frantic, um, <laughs> hardworking year. Um, but there was a lot of work around that on legal and the organization around it. That probably took two to three years. Wow. And the audits, were they, were they horrible too, or was that easy? Well, audits are always a bit of a slog. You know, you got a, <laughs> you got a huge list of evidence you need to submit that the auditors want to see, and then you've got to go collect it all and get it in the right format. Um, 
I won't lie, they're a bit tedious to do, but I do think they're a very important part of the ecosystem in that I, I think it's important that if if we're going to ask the public to trust us, we need to be willing to show the public why they should trust us. Right. I, I have not said, although, by the way, that last year, um, I think it was, yes, August last year, Google actually decided to change the behavior of Google Chrome where automatically now all homepages that don't have um, a certificate are now displayed as not secure. Yeah, such an important change. So most people don't pay attention to the lock icon in a browser and they don't understand what it means even when they do pay attention. So for example, people often think that the lock icon means a website is safe. It, it doesn't mean that. All it means is that the connection between you and the website is encrypted. You know, to, to quote someone else who's much funnier than I am, you know, it might be Satan on the other end of the line for all you know. <laughs> Just means you're having an encrypted conversation with Satan, right? <clears throat> um, so it doesn't mean that websites are safe. It just means that you have a secure connection to them. So that lock, lock icon is generally either ignored or misinterpreted. So I think it's pretty important that that lock icon go away. And we want to switch from something called positive UI for HTTPS. We want to go to negative UI, meaning instead of having an icon show up when you do have HTTPS, the goal is to treat it like the normal state of things, to just show nothing, because that should be the norm, right? Right, right. And the abnormal case is when you don't have HTTPS. And in that case, you want to show a warning. So that's where we'd like to go. Um, we'd like to see browsers warn strongly when there's no HTTPS and get rid of the UI like the lock icon that displays when there is. Hmm. Actually, I have to admit, when we with our Steamboat homepage, when we switched to SSL like two years ago, we had a bit of a headache because some you know, links were still... Um, HTTP, especially the YouTube videos, and we would get constantly like warnings from the browser, and it took a bit of time and work to get this all running. So I guess maybe this is also the reason why why some people say, oh, I don't want to bother correcting all those wrong, unsecure links to images or videos, so the warnings would go away. Yeah, so enabling HTTPS is not just about getting a certificate and flipping a switch on your server. There can be quite a lot of work that you have to do with content and links and things like that. And that's certainly why it took, especially some larger organizations, some time to to make the switch. Mm-hmm. But that that's why it's so important that browsers start display warnings when that's not done, because there needs to be an incentive for people to make the switch. Um, when the browser shows nothing when you don't have HTTPS, that's not a big incentive to make the switch because it just looks like everything's fine to people. But a lot of organizations don't want to have a not secure sign displayed because they haven't made the switch. So it's it's an important it's an important way to encourage people to move to HTTPS. Hmm. So so when you're you know when movement to HTTPS. Um, Obviously, as, as we've mentioned, a lot of sites have already done it and, and, and they're already secure. 
and that and security is really important especially when you're doing things like you know if you're if you're making purchases online or anything where kind of information can get sort of usurped or whatever but but why would you like what would you tell someone that's got like uh you know why why would i want to need why would i need to have my 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 crappy geocities page yeah you know um secure what what would that be what's the importance of that for for something minor like you know just a little little website that someone makes where there's no transaction taking place there's nothing you're just looking at some text on a screen why is it important that this sort of thing also be secure that's a good question and the answer is that it's very important that it be secure people forget that traffic that's not secure not only can that be viewed by other parties along the network but it can also be modified so when you visit a web page that doesn't use https you can't be sure that what you're seeing is what the server sent so in the middle a network operator or some some person with the ability to modify network traffic can modify your web page which doesn't have anything to include something like ads or malware or you know cryptocurrency mining software, something like that. So it's not just about keeping information away from prying eyes. It's about preventing traffic from being uh, modified. Mm -hmm. And any web page can be modified no matter how simple it is. So when you visit those web pages, you're at risk because you really don't know if the data you're receiving is the correct data. Okay. It's a dangerous place out there. It is. Actually, it's interesting. If I think now about it, was there any big company before Let's Encrypt that wasn't encrypted? I mean, if I think about large companies like Facebook, Google, and so on, this I I don't think there is or there was a big homepage that wasn't secure and is now. Maybe I'm wrong. But there's nothing particular in my mind right now. Uh, you know, there there are some that I I remember even even now they still aren't, and I can't tell you what they are off the top of my head. But but there have been times where I've gone to a site and been like, really, this isn't secured. <laughs> yeah, so there are a lot of organizations that you know did take a while. So Google and Facebook, you know, they were relatively quick to HTTPS. They're they're big organizations that know the risks and have a lot of technical expertise. Mm-hmm. Um, but think about news sites, for example. People spend a lot of time visiting, you know, news sites of various kinds, from local papers to major international news organizations. And, you know, they they took some time. There's a really great, um, I forget the exact address but there's a there's a twitter account called secure the news or encrypt the news or something like that where they they tweet every time a media organization turns on https and it's fun to watch so lots of of major media organizations you know from new york times to cnn they've done a great job enabling https but it was a lot of work for them so it took them a little time So yeah, Facebook and Google, sure, they were encrypted relatively early. Um, but you know, even even Amazon product pages, things like that, surprisingly late. You know, maybe for good reason. I'm sure they have very hardworking teams that have a lot of work to do, but it's it's not easy. 
You said you are trying to get the last 20% of homepages in the internet to get encrypted too. And you mentioned also you and your team are trying to help there if they can, but you don't officially have a support team that companies can, um, well, turn to? Yeah, we don't officially have a support team. You know, we, we help... I think somewhere north of 180 million websites out there. And for us to provide you know, direct manual support to that would be very difficult. But the way that we support the people who you want to use Let's Encrypt are, first of all, we have a really great software ecosystem out there that our community helps to build. So if you want to use Let's Encrypt, there's a huge number of resources out there from you know, different types of software that work with whatever your deploy environment is. Then there's a huge amount of documentation out there about how to use that software, how to use Let's Encrypt. And then if you still have questions, we have an amazing community site at, um, I believe it's community.letsencrypt.org. But if you go to our website and click on, um, you know, get help, you'll go to that site. And you know, our, our engineers read the questions that are answered there, are asked there usually. And there's also a lot of great community members who answer questions. And you know, at this point, almost every new question has been asked before. So you can search the forum and probably find someone who had the same issue. But that people are very active on that forum, and it's a great source of help for people who need it. Hmm, interesting. So um, how how is it? Do you actually do a lot of interviews? I mean, I've seen you did a lot of um, presentations recently in the recent years where you explained about one hour, why it is important and how Let's Encrypt works and what's going on behind the scenes. Um, so, so you are tr also trying to educate people and make them more aware of... Um, what it means for the layman to have an encrypted, as AJ said, GeoCity site. Yeah, I mean, most of the things that I know, a bunch of people also know. It's not like I have you know exclusive knowledge, but I think people who understand the issues here and have the ability to help protect people should go out and talk about it, educate, make people aware of both the problems and what the solutions are. So. You know, my staff and I try to give talks and, and help educate people when we can. I, I remember also that email is a field where uh, problems are rising because I remember, you know, phishing emails, for example. People were always said like, okay, if your Amazon fake phishing site doesn't have an SSL encryption or, um, you know, a lock sign, then... It's probably a phishing site, you know, and it changed in the recent years that even those phishing sites would get a certificate. And for me, it's like making it harder, for example, for my mom to figure out if the site is secure or not. Now that even the um, phishing sites can get a lock sign displayed. Yeah, so going back to our conversation about that lock sign, the lock sign does not mean that the website you're talking to is safe. It just means that you have a, a secure connection. That's why that lock icon needs to go away. Um, you know, the research shows that most people don't notice that. So there are some people who are a little more educated on the topic, 
like yourself who might think um, I'm going to pay attention to the lock sign as, as a sign of trust. Mm-hmm. Um, but most people don't. So whether or not a phishing site uses HTTPS or has a lock icon does not strongly affect how effective the attack is, right? Because most people just don't pay attention. And specifically, they don't notice the lack of something. They don't notice when there's no lock icon. So certificates, you know, what we do to help set up these secure connections, we can't we can't police the web for what is safe content and what is not. The best way to protect yourself from that is use a browser that uses either Google Safe Browsing or Microsoft Smart Screen to check the websites you visit against lists of known problematic websites. So those programs are specifically set up to notify you when you're visiting a potentially dangerous site. The existence of a certificate is not an indicator of the safety of a website. We don't we don't have a way of knowing whether it's a malicious website or not. You know, people might set up a website that's not malicious when it's set up and get a certificate for it and then two hours later, you know, change the website to start stealing credit card numbers. I mean, we, we just don't know that. Um, there's no way for us to know. We're very focused on making sure that the connection is secure. It's not the whole picture, right? Being secure on the web means a lot of things. One of those things is HTTPS. <laughs> we cannot solve all of those problems as Let's Encrypt. But the other thing that, uh, there's another interesting thing that I'd like to point out, which is if you were to get a phishing email and you were to click on that link, and let's say you get taken in by it and you submit your credit card info to this phishing site, would you rather that you just have your credit card info stolen by the fishers, or would you also rather have it sprayed across the whole internet in the clear because the site doesn't have HTTPS? Right. Okay. Good. Good point. Good point. So, yeah. you know, we often field the question that it's basically, do all should all websites have HTTPS? You know, all with a capital A. Or there's some that shouldn't use HTTPS, and our answer is generally all websites should use HTTPS. And when we say that, we mean literally all websites, because HTTPS is not about helping the website so much as it's helping the visitors. And even in the case where you're the victim of a phishing attack, you are safer when that attack uses HTTPS. How is that 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 you're safer, um, even if it's just with the with the yeah, what you just said. <laughs> well, if, if you're at the point where you're you're a victim of a phishing site and you're going to submit your credit card info, right? Mm-hmm. That credit card info is going to go to the fisher either way. The question is, is it also going to get spread around the whole internet unencrypted? So are is your credit card information just going to get taken by one person or going to get taken by a lot of people, right? It's bad either way at this point, right, that you, you've been fished. Right. No question, but it would be worse if the phishing site didn't use HTTPS. It's like even if the site isn't secure, it's not like you you can't you can get the information, the stolen credit card number, without technical knowledge. It's not like that. Even if the site isn't secure, you still need to know how to get the data from the non-secure site. For example, using Wireshark well, well, or something. Well, let me give you. Let me give you an analogy here. Let's say I sent you a letter, a physical letter in the mail, and I said, 
please send me a letter at this address and give me all of your credit card information. Write it in the letter. So you decide, okay, for whatever reason, I'm going to send my credit card information in the mail on a physical letter back to Evil Josh. And (laughs) now now the question is, you're going to send your credit card info in the mail. Are you going to write it on a folded piece of paper inside an envelope? Or are you going to write it on the back of an open postcard so that the mailman along the way can also steal your credit card info, right? right? Ideally, in this case, you would send your credit card info in an envelope. It's already bad. You're sending it to a bad place. But you are safer when you send it in a secure envelope than you are if you wrote it on the back of a postcard. Does that make sense? Yes. Okay, sure, sure. It's hmm. it's kind of it's it's amazing already how many people will will uh, my girlfriend and I were just talking she works at a uh, uh, with a, at a at a jewelry place as a graphic designer and people will call up and they'll be just you know they want to buy something and they they'll say so I just I just email you my my credit card information like people are so um, they're already so lax about keeping track and just giving that information to anyone that they want you know without even thinking of the consequences of that. Yeah, I mean, phishing phishing is a big problem in the world, and you know, certificate authorities are not the organizations that are going to solve that problem. Mm-hmm. But there's a lot of smart people working on it, and like I said, the best thing that you can do today on the web is use Google Safe Browsing or Microsoft Smart Screen when you're browsing, mm-hmm. and let those things tell you when there's phishing sites because the you know, lock icons or HTTPS status is not helpful. Right, because the phishing sites can actually get certificates. Correct. And they always will. I mean, that was true before Let's Encrypt, and it will be true, you know, going forward. What do you do if you find out that, that a phishing site is using a certificate that, say, you have, you have, have provided? Um, for Let's Encrypt, we don't do anything. Okay. And the reason is what I just described. You know, victims victims of phishing attacks are safer when they when they use HTTPS. Also, really don't have a way to, you know, let's say we decided that a site was a phishing site. By the time that gets reported to us, and by the time we do an investigation and we come to the conclusion conclusion like, okay, yeah, this is a phishing site. Mm-hmm. You know, we're talking at a bare minimum twelve hours here. More realistically, a couple days. By the time we get around to revoking that thing, the phishing attack is over, right? Mm-hmm. Even even if we wanted to revoke these certificates, we don't have an appropriate mechanism to do it. It, it takes too long for us to figure out that something is a phishing site and revoke it. And then on top of that, remember I mentioned before in our discussion about expiration dates on certificates and why ours are shorter, revocation doesn't really work. So even if we revoke the certificate, you know, Google Chrome doesn't check that revocation status. That cert's still good in Chrome until it expires. So by the time we have an investigation, it's too late. The actions that we can take aren't very effective. And then you get into a lot of complicated situations, right? So the other day I visited the homepage of a major news organization, a major international news organization. And they had some ads on their site that were serving malware. Wow. So my computer, you know, could have contracted some malware from this site. 
do you think that it would be appropriate for the certificate authority for this major news website to to take my evidence and say this site is delivering malware we're gonna, we're going to revoke your certificate immediately is that the appropriate course of action no clearly it's not i mean you're not going to shut down the entire international news site because somebody contracted malware through an ad on a particular page, right? Right. Um, but that's really all a certificate authority can do, right? It's a, it's like taking a sledgehammer to a tiny problem. <laughs> um, the enforcement mechanisms here just aren't good enough. So you want to protect yourself from things like malware by using things like you know Microsoft Security Services on Windows. You want to protect yourself from phishing you know, with Microsoft Smart Screen or Google Safe Browsing, because they can block like a particular page or a particular ad or something like that instead of taking down the whole site. Right. They have much. They have much more appropriate enforcement mechanisms available to them. They're both more appropriate and more effective. Tr- trying to get CAs to do this stuff, because all we can do is deal with the certificate. It just doesn't make any sense. Now, one thing would interest me, did you expect when you started with Let's Encrypt that the rate of homepages adopting to secure uh, connections would be so fast and so high? I think the adoption rate exceeded our expectations. I would like to tell you that we had some specific expectations, but we didn't. I mean, this stuff is very hard to predict. The only thing we were confident in is that if we offered certificates in a free and easy to use way, the adoption rate would go up. And that's true, that did happen. Internally, we had some polls and bets around exactly how much it would go up, you know? And I think the numbers were always higher than we guessed. So the the adoption rate has been really great. And now the next big thing would be IP version six. <laughs> well, we support IPv6 if people want to do that. Um, there's a bunch of exciting things on the internet. You know, I'm a huge fan of IPv6. I hope that it gets adopted more widely. I'm a huge fan of DNS over HTTPS or DOH as people call it, which browsers are starting to work on rolling out now. So that'll be exciting when your your DNS queries are encrypted. Um, there's a bunch of cool efforts on the web that are going to make us all safer. Hmm. Hmm. And and is there anything um, you are working on right now, the next big step for Let's Encrypt? You know, we're we're always expanding our systems to absorb more traffic. So when we get the remaining 20% of page load secure, we're going to have to deal with more traffic. So we're always looking about how can we improve our, improve our capacity, how can we improve our reliability, things like that. Um, And security, you know, we talked a little bit before about looking ahead to sort of larger ecosystem threats like BGP attacks and how can we defend against those before they become a real problem for us. Um, that's really what we're doing. You know, we we have a very particular mission with Let's Encrypt and the Let's Encrypt effort, and that is to provide certificates to the world in the easiest way possible. Mm-hmm. And we're going to stay focused on that, and we're just going to grow and improve the quality of our service as we as we grow. And for you personally, um, 
Is there anything else you want to do after Let's Encrypt, or is that your career path you're happy with now? You know, I, I have no plans to leave Let's Encrypt right now. Um, it's been an incredibly fulfilling job to have, you know, from start to the present day. It's hard to imagine that there's any other place right now where I can have the kind of impact that I can have, work with a really amazing team, um, be a part of a, an amazing community. So I'm pretty happy here. That said, there's always exciting new things happening on the web. And, you know, if I see another opportunity to have this kind of impact and work with great people, um, maybe we'll do it either as, you know, there may be other projects by Internet Security Research Group alongside Let's Encrypt. So there may be other things that we do within this organization and maybe some other challenges will require a different organization. But I'm pretty happy here right now. Interesting. Okay. Well, um, for, for my side, <laughs> I got it <laughs> almost covered. Yeah. So where can people go to find out about this and about the services that you're offering and how they can benefit from it? Yeah. So the first place to start is letsencrypt.org, L-E-T-S-E-N-C-R-Y-P-T.org. And once you're there, uh, there is documentation, there's links to our community, places you can donate. Um, if you want to go to the the website for the, the legal entity that operates Let's Encrypt, that address is abetterinternet.org. So that's the Internet Security Research Group website that you can learn about, you know, what is our mission, who's on our board of directors, things like that. Excellent. And generally speaking, you know, there's a lot of information out there if you if you want to Google it. <laughs> cool. We'll put links to everything in the podcast description. Um, is there anything that, that we have missed that you want to touch upon? I don't think so. That was a great, uh, great set of questions. It was a pleasure. I guess one thing I'll say is if you are listening and you work for an organization that either uses Let's Encrypt or you know, has has similar philosophy or believes in what we do, you should consider uh, sponsoring Let's Encrypt. Um, there's information about that on our website. Great. Awesome. What's basically the benefit of um, supporting you with donations apart from being mentioned on your Twitter account? <laughs> yeah. Well, well the, and also helping to keep the internet safe. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, the big benefit is you make sure that Let's Encrypt... Um, is here to help people for a long time. Um, like I said, we're, we're pre pretty efficient about what we do. I think you'd be hard pressed to find a place where, you know, your dollar goes further for privacy and security on the web. So when you become a sponsor, not only are you helping to cover whatever costs you might be incurring over here, but you're helping to secure, you know, tens, hundreds of thousands or millions of websites for other people. Right. Well, thank well, you so much. It was a thanks pleasure. Thanks for sitting with us. Yeah. Thanks a lot. That was Josh Ost of Let's Encrypt. Wonderful. Um, again, you can you can go to letsencrypt.com and see what he's doing. Isn't it uh, letsencrypt.org? I don't know. I just had it open in front of me. I was just looking at it. Well, that's a better internet.org. Um, hang on. Yes. Okay, so you can... You can go to letsencrypt.org and check out what they're doing and, and donate and support 
what you know bringing a, a safer internet to everybody you can also check out a better a better internet.org which is kind of the umbrella thing that he just talked about um, and again links to everything in the podcast description below so you can check that out um, once you're at a computer or somewhere where you can do it don't do it if you're driving if you're listening to this in the car uh, wait till you get to where you're going yeah and then go check it certainly, out certainly certainly right so until next time i'm aj and he's him see you <laughs> or hear you <laughs> bye bye